of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin reading that verse 1. And we're going to travel through Matthew's gospel. It's going to take us a little while, but I think you're going to be tremendously blessed. And you're going to be encouraged in, as we learn of the life and ministry, the compassion and love of Jesus Christ as we go through Matthew's gospel. So Matthew chapter 1, if you'll turn there. One of the things that if you ever go to Israel with us, the, the neat thing about going up into the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, where most of the gospel took place, particularly on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, where the ruins of Capernaum are in Bethsaida and, and, um, and Chorazin. But the landscape hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. They haven't developed it. They haven't, you know, built it up. Very beautiful spot. Uh, it's very rural like it was. A lot of agriculture. Uh, so the landscape is pretty much what it was like in Jesus' day. And, and as you look carefully, uh, what we do is, um, you know, a large percentage of the gospel took place on the northern shores. Um, the feeding of the 5,000, the miracles, uh, the Mount Beatitudes, right? there behind Capernaum. And when we go there uh, and read the scriptures from Matthew, uh, the Beatitudes, that I show the, the group an, an ancient road that you can see some of the ruins of those ancient roads where Jesus obviously would walk on. And, and here's the thing about Israel. Uh, even though it's a little tiny country the size of New Jersey, it's a place where three continents come together, where Asia and, um, and Europe and Africa come together. So there was a lot of travelers coming through the Jordan Valley, up in the Galilee region. They would travel, going to different places, the caravans. And 2,000 years ago on that ancient Roman road, uh, there was a tax station that was set up. And it was operated by a man that Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel tells us that his name was Levi. And because Levi was a tax collector, he was a Jew collecting taxes for the Romans. He would be very much despised. He would be hated deeply by the people of Israel. And one day... He sees this man come into the area of Capernaum, the area of Galilee, and amazing things are happening. So, Father, as we look at this one who came to give us life, to free us from sin, as we go through this gospel, the Lord, I pray that we would be amazed in our hearts, that we would see the compassion and the love of Jesus Christ, that we would, Lord, just fall more in love with you, even as it was the Greeks in John's gospel that said, we wish to see Jesus, that's our desire every time that we gather here. And so, Lord, I thank you for the privilege of studying your word this morning. I pray that you would touch our hearts with it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So all of a sudden, Levi, he's seen these people that are getting healed of every kind of sickness and disease. Lepers are being cleansed. That never was heard of before. Demoniacs are being freed. But also what this man named Jesus from Nazareth was saying. He was teaching with authority, unlike the scribes and the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And he would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You're to love your enemies. You can't serve both God and riches. And he he had even heard about how the winds and the waves of the stormy Sea of Galilee would calm at his command. That's in Matthew chapter 8. And then all of a sudden, as Matthew records in his ninth chapter here, that Jesus walks up to his tax collecting station and says to Levi, 
come follow me. And the Gospels tell us that he immediately rose up and followed Jesus. He left his tax collecting station. He left the scales. He left the money. He left the books. Probably handed it over to someone else. And instead of serving the king of Rome... All of a sudden, Levi is serving the king of kings, Jesus. And Jesus would go to Levi's house that night for dinner. And Levi in his home would have other tax collectors and and those who were considered sinners over. And Levi, I believe, was introducing them to this one that had touched his heart to this one had made everything new, to this one that would be his new boss, if you would. And we know that as Jesus was there ministering to them, uh, he was introducing them to this one full of compassion, this powerful itinerant preacher that would come to me, come to me an outcast, hated by society and hated by the religious establishment, and he would dare say to me, follow me? You see, later on, Jesus would change his name to Matthew. And it would be fairly shortly after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that Matthew would grab pen in hand. And he, as he is moved by the Holy Spirit, begins to write about the birth and the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He would record Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And so we have the first book in the New Testament, of course, the Gospel of Matthew. And as you have the four Gospels, as most of you know, that are recorded in the New Testament, you have what are called the synoptic Gospels. Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those Gospels, as you read them, put an emphasis on Jesus' Galilean ministry. <clears throat> what took place up in the Galilee region where Jesus spent most of his time. It doesn't mean that they don't record events in Judea or in Jerusalem. Of course they do. It's, they record his triumphal entry. They record in the last week of Jesus leading up to his trials and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. But many of the things that they write about took place up here in this area of Galilee. Matter of fact, we're going to see that Matthew's gospel is going to give us some very significant portions of Jesus' teaching. It's not included in the other gospels. Matthew gives you a fuller version of the Sermon on the Mount, of the Olivet Discourse. Now, when you read John's gospel, the fourth gospel that we have in the New Testament, his emphasis is Jesus' Judean ministry. And he records events that took place in Jerusalem that are not recorded in the synoptic gospels. And again, he does mention some of the events that took place up in the Galilee region and the ministry of Jesus there. But as many of you know, that each of the gospels, as you read them, they have a different emphasis for a particular reader. And what I mean by that is Matthew's gospel was written to show us that Jesus is the King of Kings. And so it was written for the Jewish reader to show us that Jesus is the Messiah promised by the Old Testament prophets. And as we go through this gospel here, we're going to see that there's going to be lots of quotes from the Old Testament. Matter of fact, I believe there's 53 quotes from the Old Testament. And one of the key phrases that we see in Matthew's gospel is, this was fulfilled what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matter of fact, we're going to see it here as we continue in chapter 1. But of course, the Jewish reader would be very familiar with the scriptures and see that Jesus, yes, he's the one that fulfilled all 
all the prophecies spoken of Messiah in the Old Testament. Now Mark, he writes his gospel. Remember, if you were here with us last week, we talked about John Mark. John Mark was Jewish. He was not one of the 12 disciples. He was from Jerusalem. Paul, at the end of his life, right before he's executed, he says, Timothy, bring John Mark to me. He's useful to me. But John Mark, when he writes his gospel, which is the shortest of the gospel, he writes to show that Jesus was the perfect servant. And and the theme in Mark, of course, chapter 10, is Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Mark was written to the Roman reader since, you know, in the Roman Empire, uh, soldiers and service and servants was a major emphasis of the Roman Empire. Now Luke, Dr. Luke, he was not Jewish. He was Gentile. He was a physician. And he traveled with Paul and his missionary journeys was with Paul at the end of his life as we talked about him again last week in Paul's final statement that he made uh, as he writes to Timothy before he's executed. But Luke, uh, as he's Gentile, he's not Jewish. He writes to show that Jesus was the perfect man. So his audience is the Greek audience. And of course, the Greek culture was big into and fascinated with the perfect man, you know, oratory skill and philosophy and intellect. Now, John, probably the last of the Gospels to be written, he was Jewish. He was one of the 12 disciples. And he writes for everyone to read because his emphasis is Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, He emphasizes the divinity, the deity of Jesus. Jesus Christ. So what you have in John's gospel is, again, not only emphasis of Jesus, his Judean ministry and, and things that took place in Jerusalem, but also the great I am statements, the statements of deity, that I am the bread of life, that I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the door, I'm the vine, and so forth. So we have the gospels here, and one more point as uh, we get ready to move into and dig into Matthew is Matthew probably was the first gospel written. Now, there's some thought that Mark was the first one that was written, and it ended up being an outline for Matthew and for Luke. But I think the evidence kind of more clearly shows that it was very probable, very likely that Matthew, that he wrote his gospel first because the early church was what? Made up of Jewish believers. And he would write it, it is believed, between 45 and 55 AD, perhaps from the city of Jerusalem. And it is during those years that Paul is doing his missionary journeys and he's reaching out to the Gentiles. So uh, be that as it may, Matthew's probably the first gospel that was written to the Jewish reader. And so now as we begin to look at it with that background in mind, that we read in verse 1 of chapter 1 that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, remember that Matthew's gospel was written with a heavy emphasis to the Jewish reader. And so Matthew opens up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ through his stepfather, Joseph. And to the Jewish reader, one of the first things that you would have to show is that Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew showing that the genealogical record supports that fact. This is not Jesus' bloodline through Mary. The Gospel of Luke provides Jesus' blood lineage through Mary. Matthew provides his legal lineage through Joseph. 
So Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, it is being established that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, both racially uh, and as he comes from the line of Abraham, and royally coming from the line of David. You see, to claim to be the Messiah, you would have to be a descendant of Abraham. It wasn't just anyone who said, oh, I'm the Messiah. Uh, you would have to fulfill those prophecies. One of the prophecies, you have to be a descendant of, of Abraham. Messiah would be that. And, and God said to Abraham, remember Genesis chapter 22, that God tested Abraham. And Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the mount that I will show you. And Abraham put the wood of the sacrifice on Isaac's back, and together they walked up that hill, Mount Moriah. And when they got to the top of the hill, there is Abraham. He builds that altar. He's about ready to sacrifice his son. And God said, stop, Abraham. Now I know that you love me. And Abraham called that place what? The place where the Lord will provide. And I believe it's the same place that 2,000 years later that God the Father watched his only son with the wood of the sacrifice on his back walk up that exact same hill. It was called Mount Moriah in Abraham's time. It was called Mount Calvary, Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue in Jesus' day. As he went to the top of that hill, but this time, there was no stopping it when he was nailed to the cross. And we know that he provided for us there, didn't he? The Lord will provide. He provided forgiveness of sin as he made atonement for your sin and my sin. And as Abraham called it, the Lord will provide. The Lord went on to tell Abraham in verse 18 of Genesis 22 that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And it would be Paul when he was writing to the Galatian churches in chapter 3 verse 16 explains who that seed is. Now to Abraham, he writes, in a seed where the promise is made, he does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So we are told that Jesus Christ is the seed that is a descendant of Abraham. And then to remind you that Paul goes on to emphasize in Galatians that we are Abraham's seed by faith, uh, being children of faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. As we believe in Jesus Christ, it is accounted to us as righteousness. But here Matthew is establishing that Jesus was, according to Scripture, a descendant of Abraham, but also a descendant of David as well. And the Jewish reader reading this, looking at and reading this genealogy, would think back to what? 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember, David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build the temple. And he told Nathan, I want to build a temple for the Lord. And, and Nathan said, do all that's on your heart, David. But then the Lord came to Nathan and said, you spoke too soon. That you need to go back and tell David that he's not going to build the house. That his son Solomon's going to build the temple. But you also tell David this. That I'm going to make him a house. And Nathan said, David, he's going to make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. And I will set up a seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And David just overwhelmed, worships the Lord at that time, an incredible chapter.
So the prophecy given that the Messiah would come through the throne of David, a descendant of David, and that is why in the gospel you have the term uh, that people are crying out, son of David, son of David. It's a messianic term. So here's the genealogy of Jesus through his stepfather Joseph. Verse 2, that Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now, I'm not going to read all the names through verse 16. Uh, last time that I taught this, 13 years ago, I read through all the names. So you can get the, the tape of that if you want to hear all the names read. <laughs> but for sake of time... Um, you can read it as we've gone through the, the historical books, uh, as we've gone through the books of Moses. We've read a lot of these names. We've, we've looked at these individuals. And I want to remind you that God didn't put this in, all these names, to be boring or to waste ink. But there's a divine purpose to this. And of course, first of all, to show the line that Jesus came through. But secondly, I believe to show us that the Bible is historically accurate. And the third reason I believe that God wants uh, these names that are written here, and that is to encourage us and bless us this morning. Because we're going to look at some of these names as we highlight it. We're not going to obviously look at in depth to all these names because it would take us the rest of the year. And maybe that might make sense when we get to the end of the year. Then we can read the Christmas story here in verse 18, and, uh, which we did last Christmas and looked at it. But I, I do want to highlight a few things as we travel through this first chapter. And, and I think that it is going to be encouragement to you. First of all, we see here that four women that are mentioned. And you say, so what? Really, there's five, because Mary's going to be mentioned at the end. But there's four women in this genealogy. And the reason that I'm pointing it out, because in ancient times particularly, to the Jewish reader, it would kind of be noticeable. It would stick out like a sore thumb. Because women usually were not included in lists of genealogies. Not normally. It was very unusual. And as we look at these lists of women that are mentioned here, you go verse 3, you have the first woman mentioned is, is Tamar. And we read about her situation in the book of Genesis. And listen, when you go through the book of Genesis and you read about Abraham and a covenant going through Isaac and then Jacob and his 12 sons being the patriarch to the 12 tribes of Israel, the Bible is very honest about those events that took place. And it wasn't always pretty. It wasn't always, you know, uh, you know, um, that uh, some really uh, some things happened that that are hard to read at times. And, and the story of Tamar is one of them. We read about her situation in Genesis chapter 38, that Judah, who is the patriarch to the tribe of Judah, where Jesus would come from, he came from the tribe of Judah. Judah, his eldest son, Ur, marries Tamar, as you read that chapter. And the scripture says that he was, Ur, a, a wicked man, so God judged him, God killed him. And according to custom, and later on it would be part of the law uh, in Israel, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 25, that if a man marries and, and doesn't have children to continue the family name, to have a child to be the heir, to continue the, the name of the dead you know, uh, brother, um, the, the husband that died, that was really important, to pass on your inheritance to your offspring. 
So what would happen is that you would have your brother marry your wife and have children with her. And so they continue the inheritance in your name through uh, your children that they have. So he would raise up the dead brother's offspring. That's the way it was. That was in the law. That's why when we get to the end of the book of Matthew, that the Sadducees are going to come to Jesus and they're going to come up with this ridiculous scenario. Hey, if a man marries this woman and they don't have any children and he dies and she marries the brother and they don't have any children and he dies and marries the other brother all the way to seven brothers, when the resurrection happens, which the Sadducees didn't believe in, whose you know, husband is, is she uh, going to be married to? And, and Jesus said, eh, well, it's, you know, you're not given to marriage. And we'll get to that and look at that uh, when we get to that portion. So Ur, the eldest of Judah's son, died. So Judah said to the next son, okay, Onan, uh, you marry Tamar, raise up an heir to your brother. But he also was wicked and God killed him. So Judah wouldn't give Tamar to the third brother, the youngest, Shelah. And so she dressed up, knowing that she's not going to have a child. What she does is she plays the harlot. She dressed up as a harlot, heavily veiled. She's at that place she knows where her father-in-law, Judah, is going to be passing by with the sheep. And he passes by. He wants to have relations with who he thinks is a harlot. And he gives her a signet and a cord and a staff. She conceives. And when Judah hears what she's with child, Judah, first of all, gets angry and, and wants to put her to death. And she says, before you do that, here is the signet, here's the cord, here's the staff of the man that, that got me pregnant. And he realized the wickedness that he had done. She ends up having twins, Perez and Zerah. So Tamar gets into the genealogy by playing the harlot. And then the second woman that's mentioned here, verse 5, is Rahab. And she is a harlot, but she's also a Gentile. We know her story in Joshua chapter 2, where she hid the spies that spied out Jericho. And she would say to those spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. We know that he parted the Red Sea. He drowned the Egyptian chariots. The God you follow, he is truly God in heaven and above uh, and, and on earth beneath. And she would be listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith. Incredible story. Then you have Ruth that is mentioned, verse 5. She is Gentile, as she is a Moabitess. You know the story, the beautiful book of, of, of Ruth in the Old Testament, only four chapters, but it, it speaks of, of her marrying Boaz eventually, the kinsman redeemer. But the story starts out as Naomi and her two sons go to Moab because of famine, and Naomi lost her husband. Uh, her two sons married uh, women from Moab. They, they lose their husbands. And so she decides, Naomi, to go back to Bethlehem. When you stand in Bethlehem and you look east, you actually look over the Jordan Valley and you can see the mountains of Moab where they went to. And that's where Ruth came from. And so Ruth says, I'm going to go back with you, Naomi, back to Bethlehem. And your people shall be my people and your God, uh, my God. And then, of course, the beautiful story how Boaz came and redeemed her. It's a picture of our greater than Boaz, our kinsman, redeemer, Jesus Christ.
And then the fourth woman that is listed is Bathsheba, verse 6. And notice that her name is not especially mentioned, but we know that it is her who gave birth to Solomon. David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And you know the story, again, most of us from 2 Samuel chapter 11, that David had sinned with Bathsheba. So here you have these four women, coupled with questionable reputations, couple that are Gentile women, all mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And I just wonder, I just wonder what was going through Matthew's mind as he wrote down the names of these women. How can the mentioning of these four women be an encouragement to you and to me this morning? Well, you see, in Jesus' days, we go through this gospel, we're going to see there, there were certain groups of people that the religious leaders and the religious establishment looked down on, they despised, and they hated. They would teach that they would have no part in the kingdom of God. They could never come into the family of God. One of those groups was the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. Unfortunately, that's the way it was. They had forgotten what Isaiah had declared 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, that, the, that salvation was going to come to the Gentiles, that they were to be a light to the Gentiles. But they thought that the Gentiles were good for nothing except to fuel the fires of hell. And you see that attitude as you go through portions of the gospel and particularly when you come to Acts chapter 22 when Paul the apostle, he, he is arrested there in Jerusalem because a riot broke out and Paul asked, can I speak to the people? Can I speak to all the people that rushed to the temple there? And he gives his testimony and at the end of that testimony when he says, God sent me to the Gentiles to give the gospel the good news that all of a sudden a riot broke out again. And the Jews hearing that word Gentile, as soon as they heard that, they're throwing dirt up in the air, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're waving their arms, they're tearing their clothes because they despise the Gentiles. And here in this genealogy, you have listed as part of God's plan, Gentiles. The religious leaders had real contempt for those who are known as sinners. And oftentimes in the Gospels, when you read that word sinners, it's referring to those who are adulterers, those who are harlots. They came and they threw this woman down in front of Jesus and said, we caught her in the very act of adultery. And the law says that she is to be stoned. What saith thou, teacher? And Jesus, writing on the ground, as you read in John chapter 8, he eventually would get up and he would say to those religious leaders that he who is without sin, you cast the first stone. We know in Luke chapter 7 as there in Simon's house, the Pharisee had Jesus over for dinner, that woman only known as a sinner, probably a harlot. She comes into the house and she falls at the feet of Jesus and she's washing his feet with their tears and drying them with their hair and she's weeping and she's worshiping and, and the whole room, and you can imagine, just gasp. How could this happen? Who let her in? And all of a sudden Jesus looked into her eyes and said, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. As we consider these names, 
not only the Gentiles and those considered sinners, but the tax collectors. You see, I think that as Matthew, as he's writing these names down and writing the name of these women, that he had joy in his heart and he had, I think, a smile on his face. Inspired to write down these names because he knew what it would be like to be one that was despised and hated by the religious establishment. And that God would include these ones to be a part of his plan for the kingdom. And that God would care enough about me to include me, a tax collector, to be his disciple and to follow him. Because tax collectors were seen as traitors. They were hated. They were usually greedy. They were wealthy because of their dishonesty. And here in chapter 9, he gets up from his table and has a banquet that night with those who were considered sinners and tax collectors. And, And that's the only people that would associate with Levi, with Matthew. And the religious leaders come by with their noses in the air and they say, how can your teacher eat with these tax collectors? and sinners and Jesus would respond by saying I didn't call the righteous but sinners into repentance one of the themes that I hope that we see going through this gospel is the compassion of Jesus when we read how that leper that Dr. Luke says was full of leprosy came to Jesus and cried out and said that if you're willing, cleanse me. And Jesus said, I'm willing. And with those compassionate hands reached out and touched that man and immediately he was cleansed. It was against the law to touch somebody with leprosy. And Jesus, with compassion, reaches out and touches him just as he has compassion for you this morning. And maybe you're feeling all eat up inside and ostracized and isolated. And you're saying, Lord, there's things that are just getting at me and eating at me. And the Lord with his compassion desires to touch your heart and your soul. To cleanse you, to heal you. And it was Jesus we're going to read on that hillside. They would look out on the multitudes with compassion as sheep without a shepherd. And as he had compassion on the people, the second theme that we're going to see is that he will give an invitation of come. And he would cry out, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come learn of me, for I'm lowly and humble. Yoke yourself with me. My burden is light. Learn of me, he would say. And he would go up to that tax collecting station and he would say to Matthew, come. He didn't say to Matthew, go away. You disgust me. He said, you come. And you see, the invitation is for all of us. And if you're here today and you've never come to Jesus, He's given that invitation to come to him and believe on him, to be forgiven of sin, to be part of the family of God, to have right relationship with the Father, to have the promise of eternal life. You come because he is your salvation, because he went to a cross to die for your sins and he rose again. And as he is calling you to come, maybe you're here and you're feeling like you're struggling, that you're having a difficult time, that that you're just really going through it. He says, you come. You come and turn to me. And you reaffirm your love to him as he gives the invitation 
for you to come and receive his love once again. Repent of their sin in your life. And Matthew said bye to the old life and everything was new in his life when he went to Jesus. And we're new in Christ, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But also as we go through this genealogy and as we go through this book, that we're going to be reminded that God's word and promises are true and he's faithful to bring his word and promises to pass. You see, Messiah would come from the son of David. David the Messiah is going to sit on your throne. And when you go through the book of Second Chronicles, there was a time of Ahaziah. He's the king of Judah. He's on the throne, and he gets killed up north in Israel. So his mother, Ataliah, that was a very evil woman. She was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And we don't have time to go into it all this morning, but they were the demonic duo up north uh, ruling over the ten northern tribes that brought you know, all the counselors down to Judah. They, they corrupted the leaders of Judah. Well, Ataliah, she begins to kill all the royal heirs to the house of Judah. And she almost succeeded. But Ahaziah had a sister who was married to a priest named Jehoiada. They had a son, Joash, who was one years old when all of this was going on. And they hid him in the temple for six years. And when he was seven years old, they would bring him out. And he became king king to continue the line of David. As you move into 2 Chronicles chapter 23, it looked like the word of the Lord and the promise of the Lord was going to fail, but it didn't. And maybe you're here this morning. And maybe you're thinking things are just falling apart and things are dying around me. And it seems like the word of the Lord isn't for me or the promise of the Lord's going to fail. And it's not. Because even as you read at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, <laughs> that these words are true and faithful. That we can trust in his word and we can rest in his love. And so this wonderful genealogy that finishes in verse 16, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. The reason that it's worded that way is Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, is because, of course, Jesus was virgin born. And Joseph was his stepfather. Jesus born of Mary, the fifth woman mentioned in the genealogy in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until the the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So Matthew divides up this genealogy of Jesus into three time periods. Matthew points out he didn't list every individual in the genealogy in these time periods. Instead, he listed 14 generations in each of these time periods. Jewish reckoning did not require every name in order to satisfy a genealogy. So this was not an unusual practice, or it wasn't that he had a bad memory or was too lazy to list all the other names. And now Matthew records something very familiar. We even talked about it on Christmas Eve. We're going to read through it, and then I'm going to make a couple comments uh, concerning the birth of Jesus. Now the birth of Jesus, verse 18, Jesus Christ was as follows. His mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. 
Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. And while they thought about these things, uh, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. Very familiar. We read this at Christmas time, but a couple points I want to make, and then we'll close. Number one, Joseph here. Here he is as uh, we read about his situation. He's betrothed to Mary in the espousal period. They would go through an espousal period, which is very similar to, in our culture, in our society, the engagement period. They were actually legally married, but they didn't consummate the marriage. They didn't live together. And, and that's why Matthew is inspired by the Spirit of God to write before they came together. But they're in that espousal period. Joseph espoused, going to be married to this incredible godly young lady. Mary was probably only about 16, 17 years old at this time. And all of a sudden, she's pregnant. And Joseph hears about it. And you can imagine what he's thinking, that all of a sudden his world is falling apart, his plans, his life, his future. And he loved her very much. And the ramifications could be very serious for, for Mary. So he wants to put her away secretly. And the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, she's going to bring forth the son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yahshua, the Lord thy salvation is what it means. And he will save his people from their sins. And this is fulfilled, as we're going to read, as the prophet has said in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that he shall be Emmanuel, which is God with us. You know, a lot of people are afraid right now. I talk to a lot of people that are afraid. People are concerned about the coronavirus. How bad is it going to be? People are waking up in the morning concerned about the stock market. How far is it going to, to nosedive and collapse? People are worried about the election. People are worried about a lot of things. Maybe you're here and you're feeling anxious. You're worried. Maybe things seem to be falling apart in your life. And the Lord says this to you. Because it was very difficult times back then. I mean, think about it. Here is Rome that is bludgeoning everybody into submission. You read the Christmas story. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I mean, when he made a decree, you had to travel, and you had to travel to that place of ancestry to register for new taxes and a new census. You didn't dare speak against Caesar Augustus. You didn't protest. And you didn't protest against Herod the king that we're going to talk about next time because he was ruthless. People were afraid. And here's Joseph. He's afraid. What's going to happen? All of a sudden, Mary is with child. And the angel says, you don't have to be afraid. And the word to you and to me is we don't have to be afraid, folks. 
I know that we can become anxious. We wonder what's going to happen. But we don't have to be afraid. You know why? Because Jesus was born and he went to a cross. And he's going to save his people from their sins. It's not going to be Rome that's going to put you in bondage. It's not going to be Caesar Augustus. It's not going to be Herod the Great. It's not going to be the circumstances. What puts us in bondage is sin. Because sin separated us from God. And the wages of sin is death. Because of Adam's sin, sin and death has come into the world. And Jesus, Yahshua, the Lord thy salvation, heaven names this baby Jesus because he's the one that's really going to do it. And he's going to save you from a greater bondage than the world can put on you, and that is to save you from sin. So we don't have to be afraid. we got a glorious future. Do you realize that? And we got to keep our eyes on heaven. And his word is true and faithful. Because you see, here's the deal. The other reason that we don't have to be afraid is not only are we free from sin, but it was fulfilled even as Isaiah chapter 7, the Old Testament prophet. You see the circumstances of that promise that he, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. You see, the background of Isaiah chapter 7 is this. Ahaz was the king. These two other kings were going to kill him. So Isaiah comes and says, listen, Ahaz, it's not going to happen. They're not going to kill you. It's not going to take place. Ahaz wasn't right with God. He's running around trying to figure everything out. He's not believing the word of the Lord. And it is Isaiah that says, ask for a sign. Ask for it in the heaven. Ask for it on the earth, under the earth. He wouldn't do it. And so Isaiah said, listen, believe the word of the Lord or you will not be established. And the Lord's going to show you a sign Ahaz, and that is the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Listen, God is with you. He's with me, Emmanuel. And so often in life, we're running around trying to figure this out and how do we do that? And I got to, you know, make things happen. And the Lord is saying, I am with you and be established in the word of the Lord. Because if we're not, we're going to be running around trying to figure everything out in our own strength, in our own understanding. And we're reminded this morning that we don't have the spirit of fear but the spirit of adoption that we can cry out, Abba, Father, and the Lord's word is true to you and to me, and God is with us. And we can rest in that. And we can believe that. And we can face tomorrow, whatever it brings, because I am free from sin, Lord, and I belong to you, and you're going to see me through, and he's going to see you through. You wait and you'll see that his promises are true for you and that he is with you. He promised he'll never leave you or forsake you. God with us, Emmanuel. So, Father, thank you. We thank you so much for, Lord, this portion that maybe we've read over. And, um, but, Lord, it's so encouraging to us that you've included us into the family of God. And, Lord that you sent your son to come to die for our sins, to free his people from sin. So I'm so grateful that we have a living hope through his resurrection. And as we get ready to come to the communion table, the communion table is for the believer. As we remember his body broken for us and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin, it's a time of, of 
being thankful is a time of remembering what Jesus did for us. It's a time of worship and really reverence. As we hold the elements and we partake of them together. If you're here this morning and you've never come to Christ, or maybe you're listening on the radio or maybe on live stream, I pray that you would come. The invitation is given by Jesus to come to him and be forgiven and have right relationship with the Father and have the hope of eternal life. He is your salvation. The Lord thy salvation. He went to a cross and died for your sins. And he cried out, it is finished. He did the work. And as you come and surrender your life to him and believe on him, you will be saved. Will you do that? Will you come this morning and sincerely in your heart you can pray that Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. On that place the Lord will provide. You provided forgiveness. And I believe you're alive speaking to my heart. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know your word, your promises. I want to know you personally and walk with you. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for loving me. I thank you for bringing me into the family of God. In Jesus' name.